You are listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. To the NASM CPT Podcast, my name is Rick Ritchie, and I am here with a familiar face if you're doing the webcast and a familiar voice if you listen to the podcast. We have Fabio Kamana here, who was one of the most talked about sessions that we've done through this point. And I thought, you know, who would be a good person to have back? The <laughs> one who is making us look stellar. Fabio, what's up, man? Wow, great introduction. I love that. Thank you, that. And then a great um, AV coming into this. Man, that was impressive. Felt like I was I know. at a Super Bowl show. Very and are you Are you speaking? You're speaking at Optima this year? Yeah, I have, I have a session, yeah. What are you doing at Optima? It's one on, it's of course, they're short sessions. So it's on kind of connecting the dots between exercise, stress, um, hormones, and inflammation. Ooh. Oh, sign inflammation me up. Will be, inflammation will be a short topic, but it's really going to be connecting the dots between and between kind of acute and chronic stress. Okay. Well, <laughs> you are, you're one of my favorite presenters from my years in the industry. If I get a chance to see you, if I get a chance to see Lynn Kravitz, if I get a chance to see, there are, there are a handful of people that I just absolutely love listening to and, and, and being a part of your session. So uh, I want to I want to shout out your session and get some people in the doors for yours. And uh, and then let's uh, let's break down what we're going to talk about today. And I think some of it is was covered a little bit last time we spoke and it was energy systems and we kind of discussed it, but really a deeper understanding of energy systems and then what does programming an energy system look like because for a lot of people same thing with stabilization strength and power we know what those things are but the challenge isn't whether or not we know them it's it's whether or not we can program them same thing goes if we're using the subsystems so the deep longitudinal subsystem or the anterior oblique posterior oblique i knew what those were for years in a textbook I had no idea how to program those until I had seen them in the CES and I saw them again in the PES and I thought, well, maybe they're in here for a reason and not just for me to, to know that they exist, but maybe we can apply them somehow. And so I spent a lot of time trying to figure that out. So same thing here with energy systems. I, people are familiar with the terms or they've heard the words at least aerobic and anaerobic and there are some things that people may understand on a, on a real kind of uh, superficial level and i'd like to understand more like how do we program them what are they what differentiates them and then how do we program i, I think that's what we're looking at today yeah and i think you touched on a great point i think that translation from textbook theory into practice application is a challenge for a lot of our trainers and yeah. I think much like you were alluding to movement I think there's a equal consideration that has to go to the application of the energy systems so I think you know hopefully this will be an informative an informative session that we have together and hopefully your listeners will be able to take away some nuggets where they can actually apply them into their own practice so fingers crossed let's see what we can do yeah <laughs> let's see what happens well yeah. Talk us through first, <laughs> then, what these things are. These yeah. the words aerobic and the words anaerobic, and some people may even understand that that one of them means with oxygen and the other means without. But sure. what what does that even mean? Okay. Well, you know, before we kind of jump into that, just a quick step back as an introduction. You know, I always okay. talk about you know you can have a great car, but if you don't have the right fuel in the car. Or if you don't have fuel in the car, what's the point of having a nice car, right? The car doesn't move. So we got to understand we're so focused as an industry on, you know, burning calories and on building muscle, you know, in this transformation from fat to fit. But what we kind of seem to lose in that process of trying to get those outcomes is the fact that there is a fuel that's driving everything we do. And so having a good understanding of how the fuel systems work is really going to help you program more effectively so you can achieve better outcomes for your clients and even for yourself. And so I talk about, you know, when I when I talk about my programming model, so, you know, using OPT and everything in there, I talk about five M's. You know, I have mindset, you know, mindfulness. So mindset is just behavior. Mindfulness is how we eat. I talk about movement because that's everything that we've, we are kind of based on as, as an organization. But then the other two are 
metabolic and muscle. And we're great with the metabolic and we're great with movement, but we're not so good with the, the metabolic side of it where we're talking about the fueling. And this is kind of mm -hmm. an area that I, you know, I would say you're strong as your weakest link. And I really think as trainers, we need to do our due diligence and get stronger in this area because ultimately that's going to dictate what the muscles can do and what movement can happen. Okay. So, and, and there's a difference then between the fuels and the fuel types that get put into this sure. system. And I'm assuming there may be also a difference between the quality of what that fuel is. Yeah. So let's, let's use a quick example to kind of introduce the topic. So Rick, if I asked you, hey, do me a favor, you don't have to do this. Okay. But if I just asked you to kind of stand up and sit down out of your chair 10 times, we're just going to do 10 sit to stance. And I asked yeah. you on a scale of one to 10, how difficult was that? You'd probably tell me, you know, a one, right? I'm hoping at right. least. Pretty low. <laughs> Better not tell me it's anything higher. But <laughs> so, so we kind of be conditioned because how we learn about the energy systems in a textbook is that low intensity exercise must be aerobic. Right, it's because we have low demand for energy and an abundance of oxygen, so we're going to use our aerobic system. But the reality is, if I was to look at how you expended that fuel during those 10 sets of stands, it was going to be predominantly through the anaerobic systems. Yeah. So, the first thing I'd like to just get our listeners to understand is that we've got to separate this mindset that the anaerobic systems only contribute during high intensity exercise, and that's mm. not actually true, they contribute all the time. So right now, Rick, you might stand there and decide, I want to scratch my head. So you were going from using maybe sitting in a chair one, one and a half to two calories a minute to, let's go back to my analogy of the sit to stands. Mm -hmm. That sit to stand process wasn't intense. It was maybe six, seven calories worth of work in a minute and you maybe took 20 seconds to do it. So you only spent a few calories, but that differential between the energy you're expending sitting and to do that little bit of extra work was needed immediately, and that's where the anaerobic systems contribute. Anytime you have a change in intensity of work, the aerobic system is too slow to adapt itself like a light switch. We can't just go from here to there like a light switch. The aerobic system needs time to catch up. We all know it. We call it getting our second wind or getting to steady state. That's when the aerobic system is catching up to the work. But in the meantime, you're having to do that work. Who are you getting that energy from? Well, that's where the anaerobic systems come in. So think of our lives. Sorry, go on. I was just going to say, is that what people talk about then where they may say you need at least 20 minutes of cardio uh, before you hit this aerobic uh, thing? I just remember studying that years ago and it was like, mm -hmm. you should do at least 20 minutes and then you're going to be in your aerobic system. Um, yes and no. Those go back to old guidelines we had from ACSM many years ago. When you start exercise and you start exercising and you say, jump on a treadmill. So let's say today yeah. you're gonna run on a treadmill and you're going from straddling the treadmill, you're keying in all your data on the on the console and then you say, okay, I'm gonna jump on and start jogging as my warm up. And let's say your warm up is five miles per hour. Yeah. You jump on there, it may take you about, depending on how fit you are, it's one of the very, one of the uh, the influencing factors, but it could take you from about 45 seconds to, to a few minutes to get to steady state. Steady okay. state by definition is when your aerobic system has had an opportunity to catch up. So now the demand for energy is being met by the supply predominantly from the aerobic system. That would be called steady state. Some people call it getting their second wind, right? Okay. They kind of, where whoo, breathing was a little challenging mm -hmm. and then they kind of get into that groove where breathing is becoming a little easier. It seems like it's now seems to be streamlined or consistent. So that okay. just takes a few minutes. That whole idea of 20 minutes of cardio was really going back to old guidelines of how much cardio, because we always believed in the old days that you had to do, you know, continuous moderate intensity training to get cardiovascular benefits. Right. But we're realizing you don't have to do that anymore. You can get do interval training and get cardiovascular benefits. So that old adage of, you know, doing this kind of bout of cardio, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's, it's, it's effective, but it's not the only modality we have anymore. Okay. Well, I, I let my ACSM lapse in 2006. So, so those guidelines that, are, are that, that might be an explanation time. for that. <laughs> so, you know, let's let's use an example here just to kind of start laying this foundation of a circuit. So let's say you go into the gym and you want to put together a circuit. And I'm going to do what a lot of people do, this mindset that if I change the muscle groups between the stations, I'm going to be okay. So let's create a five station circuit, just as an example here. 
So let's say station one is, I don't know, leg press. So it's your glutes and your quads a little bit. Let's say station two, because you want to alternate, is your chest. So you make it a chest press. Station three, you might decide I'm going to do, uh, let's keep it simple. I'll do a leg curl, all right? Station four, I'll do a, ba a, a seated row. Station five, I'll do a shoulder press. I'm just making up five, you know, five bigger muscle groups. Yeah. And so some people will go to the gym and they decide, I'm going to do a circuit. And the mindset is because I'm changing the stations, in other words, the targeted muscles are changing, I'm actually going to be okay. Well, the question is, are you really going to be okay? And the reality is, no, you're not, because you're not paying attention to the energy systems. You're focusing on the muscle groups, which is fine, but you're still emitting one thing. The energy systems are going to be contributing to how effectively you're going to be able to complete this circuit, several rotations of it, right? So let me take you through this. Let's say it's a 60-second station. All right, so for 60 seconds, you're going to go leg press, then you're going to do a quick transition, and I'm just using machines to keep it simple, right? Yeah, yeah. We're going to go quick transition to the next station, which is going to be our chest, and let's go 60 seconds there, and then you continue that way through, right? So probably take you about, what, five or six minutes to complete a circuit, and maybe you want to do three of them today, all right? So you want to do a quick 20-minute express workout, right, in and out. Okay, so let's look at this out. When we talk about the anaerobic systems, and you kind of alluded to it as a very Basic introduction, the anaerobic systems imply the absence of oxygen, yeah. right? We all know that. And there's actually two systems within the anaerob anaerobic pathway. There's what we call the phosphagen system, which is our immediate go-to system because it produces energy extremely quickly. And it's also about location. You've always heard about it in real estate. What do they say? The number one rule of real estate, right? It's always location, uh, location, 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 location. And so if you think about how the system works, it's made up of two components. Molecules of ATP, which are our energy currency, and the larger counterpart is creatine phosphate or phosphocreatine. And that takes us back to the origins of why people started supplementing with creatine about 20 to 25 years ago, right? It was to try and build this energy system. Right. And so the ATP molecules are attached directly to the myosin heads, and the creatine phosphate is in the sarcoplasm right around it. So it's great location, and it's a very fast, rapid-acting pathway to generate molecules of ATP because it doesn't involve many steps. It's rapid, right? So here you are at the station and you go and you start lifting. So here you are at station one and you're doing a leg press and you went from sitting in the press to say, okay, ready and go. And you started lifting. And that phosphagen system, if you were giving me a maximal performance, it's probably good for barely 10 seconds, but let's give you the benefit of the doubt. You're not going maximal. So let's call it 15 seconds. So it's going to fuel you for the first 15 seconds, and then it's exhausted. Yeah. But you still got 45 seconds of work to do at that station. Right. So now the second energy system has to kick in, right? The second anaerobic one, which is the fast glycolytic, the one that makes lactate. Yes. And it's good for several minutes, so it's okay. You're going to do that for 45 seconds. And then you're going to say, great, station one complete, quick transition. Let's get to the chest station, and we're going to do our chest exercises. And we're thinking, ha, change muscle group. We're good to go. So first 15 seconds phosphagen system in the pecs and then the remaining 45 seconds is that glycolytic system and then you're going to do the right. same thing station three station four station five so on paper it looks fantastic looks like you got a great program here because you are using two energy systems but because you're changing the muscle groups everything's going to be okay but you're going to realize it's not because let's dig into the little energy systems here this phosphagen system generates energy very quickly and we use the term half-life, even though it's not correctly used. The word half-life is really talking about the efficacy of a dose once you're given a dose, all right? In terms of, like, for example, caffeine, we say the half-life is about five to six hours. What that means is that when you take a dose of caffeine, five to six hours later, only half the dose is, it's only half as effective, right? Right. We also use that same word to talk about recovery. It's not the exact right word, but we just use it. And the half-life of this energy system, this phosphagen system, is around 30 seconds. Right. Okay. So let's give an example. I'm going to hold up my little shaker bottle here. All right. Let me get it away so we don't need to do a product endorsement here. Yeah. So imagine <laughs> that's, your that's your phosphagen system, right? And let's say you did 15 seconds of work and it was depleted, right? That first 15 seconds. The half-life being 30 seconds would tell us that at 30 seconds of recovery, you've only recovered half of that system, which okay. means if you try to work out on it again, unfortunately, you're going to be only be able to perform half the work. So 30 seconds gets you to halfway. Now, by this half-life analogy, if we waited another 30 seconds, Rick, we'd only be at 
If okay. we waited an additional 30 seconds, we'd be at 87.5%. You, you see what I'm getting at? It's kind of like a curvy linear recovery. And every 30 seconds, you're recovering 50% of what remains unreplenished. I see. What does that mean at the end of the day? It means that when you deplete the phosphagen system, for every part of work, it needs in the range of about 12 to 20 times that amount of recovery. So imagine if you did a uh, 10 seconds of work, you'd need 120 seconds to 200 seconds to fully recover. And that's what you see. Look at the NFL athletes and the when they do five second sprints in training, they don't just go right back up to the line and do another five seconds, another 40 yard sprint. They take a long recovery because they're trying to fully recover those energy systems so they can give their best performance. Now, let's go back to my circuit. If we did the math, 15 seconds of work, you had an additional 45 seconds where that energy system is not being used, so it's already recovering, mm -hmm. plus a 15 second transition. So now we had a minute recovery. Now we've got what? A second station, a third station, a fourth station, a fifth station. If you do all that math, by the time you came back to the glutes for the leg press, you would have given yourself close to six minutes of recovery. Okay. Guess what? That's like a one to 24 ratio. 15 seconds of work, 24 parts of recovery, which means when you come back to that glute station for the first few reps, the first 15 seconds, you're going to be like a rock star. Why? Because yeah. that energy system has completely recovered. So as long as you give enough time to recover that first energy system, I'm never worried about it. But I'm worried about the remaining 45 seconds. This is the lactate. Uh -huh. Because the lactate system, when we make lactate and hydrogen ions, all right, those cannot remain in the muscle cell. They have to be shuttled somewhere else. So we can shuttle them to various destinations. And one in particular is we put it into the blood. So we take hydrogen ions formed during the breakdown of carbohydrates and this lactate, and we dump it into the blood. But unfortunately, in the blood, it becomes a problem. So we use a buffer in our blood. We have baking soda, sodium bicarbonate. And it's a kind of a game of cat and mouse, right? Where if you are spilling over lactate into the blood, it needs to be buffered. And if you can regenerate your buffer at a rate that's faster than the spillover of that lactate and hydrogen, you're good to go. But generally at high intensity exercise, we spill over much faster, which means we're depleting that buffer. And when that buffer gets depleted, the blood can no longer take any more of that hydrogen and lactate, and it instructs the muscles, you got to keep it. And that's that burning, tingling sensation we all experience, right? Where you say, oh, yeah. few more reps, but now we get that tingling sensation because you're activating pain receptors because of the change of the pH in your muscle because of hydrogen ions. So generally, when we talk about this system, we talk about anywhere from like a one to one, call it one and a half, usually for females, because they actually can recover a little faster than males, up to about yeah. a one to five for males doing very intense work. So let's call it a one to three, just to call it an average, one to three ratio. So if I did two minutes of work, theoretically, I'd need about six minutes to fully regenerate that lactate buffer in the blood and reestablish the normal physiology. Well, let's go back to our little circuit. We did 45 seconds of work where we were spilling lactate into the blood. Yeah. yeah second transition. And then you had another 15 seconds at the next station where we were using a different energy system. And then you started kicking lactate back into the blood with the second muscle group. Because what's common across the second energy system is they can all push lactate and hydrogen into the blood. So if you look at your work to recovery ratios now, you were doing 45 seconds of dumping, 30 seconds of recovery. That's only a three to two ratio. That's not enough. So as I said, this energy system may be good for a few minutes, but at some point, this is what it's going to look like. You started to drain it but you didn't give yourself much recovery. You started to drain it, little recovery, drain it, little recovery, see where you're eventually going. At yeah. some point, you're gonna be coming around in that circuit. I don't know what station it's gonna be because I don't know what your capacity for tolerating lactate and hydrogen is, but you're gonna suddenly hit a wall where you're gonna say, let's go. And you're gonna look like a rock star in the first 15 seconds because you're using a different energy system. And then all of a sudden you're gonna just hit this wall. And so now what happens is we go from this idea of intensity into effort. Yeah. There's a big difference. And the fitness industry is right now loving this concept of HIIT training. But we're not doing HIIT training. HIIT training is not about calories. HIIT training is not about high work rate. HIIT training is about best performance. It's what athletes do. So we look at one of our PES certified professionals who might be working with an athlete. And we're looking at them training for what? Performance. Bigger, stronger, faster. They'll do these sprints, but then they're going to sit around for maybe a minute or two before they do their next sprint. So they could be on a track doing five-second sprints with an 85-second recovery 
right? That would be like a one to 14. So they could be out there for whatever, 20 minutes. And in that entire 20 minutes, they maybe did 10 reps. So they did 50 seconds of work over an entire 20 minutes. Hit training is about getting bigger, stronger, faster. It's not about calorie burn, but that doesn't work in fitness. We want to keep working. So we do high work rate workouts. We call it hit, but it's just high effort. It's not high intensity because the definition of intensity is it's measured objectively, right? It's interesting. So that's where we've made a huge mistake. And here we are as an industry saying, you know, we want other allied health professionals to respect us, to say, you know, please respect us as an industry. And the problem is you've got these strength coaches that are out there that are looking at our personal trainers going, but you don't even understand the energy systems because look at how you're programming. You're just doing high work rate and you're calling it intensity. Effort doesn't necessarily burn calories. Intensity burns calories, right? So that's why we need to have better variations in how we design our interval training programs. I love interval training. It's time efficient. We get very great, great results comparable to more moderate sustained training, but we have to program effectively. You've got to consider the energy pathways when you're designing programs for muscles or movement. Let me ask a question about that then. If if we do that, two questions. One is if we train with this effort, we will increase that buffering over time. Like we'll get more efficient at it. So let's say that you're in the second set when you first go through and you're in the the second exercise of the second set, and that's when you gas out. Now you keep doing that, it'll be the third set, the fourth set, eventually the fifth set, and then eventually the third circuit. So people will get used to that, um, uh, I assume. And then I'll have you speak to that, but also you mentioned sodium bicarbonate. And so I do have a question that goes along with that as well, which is, can you supplement baking soda? Yeah, okay, two great questions. So let me use an analogy here. Let's say, Rick, you wanted to become stronger. You wanted to increase your strength. But I had you go to the gym and just do sets of 20 to 25 reps. How much stronger are you going to get? Could you get stronger? Theoretically, you could make the argument you might be getting a little bit of strength, but is it the best way to get stronger? No, you'd want to do sub five reps with 85% or max, all right? That would be a better way to get stronger. So to your first question, if I did this high effort workout, could I improve my capacity for lactate clearance and lactate uh, you know, tolerance? Yeah, but is it the best way to do it? No, because if it was the best way to do it, then every athlete would be training that way, but they don't. They train where they will have a, a bout of whatever energy system they're training. So either the phosphagen will be a very short bout or the phosphoglycolytic would be a little longer. Then they do an active recovery an active recovery keeps the muscle pump to keep clearing hydrogen lactate. And eventually, you know, that little active recovery is allowing that buffer to rebuild itself as efficiently as possible. So it's a matter of, do you want to, you can all, we can all get to the outcome. Like you could theoretically get stronger doing sets of 20, 15 to 20 reps or 25 reps, but it's not the best way. So to your first question, you could improve things, but you wouldn't be getting the best return on your investment. The best way to train is to fully understand how these energy systems work and how much time they recover and the type of recovery that they need, which is an active recovery. It means okay. keep moving lightly so you keep the muscle pump around, all right? So that hopefully answers your first question. Your second question, can you supplement with sodium bicarbonate? Yes. There is a known oh. dosage of 0.3 grams, all right, per kilogram of body weight. So if you weighed 100, I'm gonna make my math easy. If you weighed 176 pounds, that would put you at 80 kilograms. That's easy math. <laughs> oh, well, okay. it makes my conversion because it's 2.2. <laughs> so 80 kilograms is 176 pounds. So I would have to do what? Take 80 kilograms times 0.3, right? So it would give me 24 grams of baking soda. So you take that baking soda and you put it into a liter of water, roughly 33 to 34 ounces. And you drink it within about the 30 to 45 minutes before you work out. It's a lot of fluid to drink. But what it does is remember baking soda is a base. Your pH of your blood lives in a very narrow range. So what you're doing is you're just giving a slight elevation to your blood pH without becoming dangerous. And that's going to allow you to tolerate a little bit more acidosis during exercise. It does work. It has a short-term effect. In other words, within several hours, it'll go away because your body, your body will remove all of that or use all that buffer. But it has been shown that prior to a workout, that ingestion of that 0.3 grams per kilogram of body weight in a liter of water can actually work. I will tell you two things. Number one, it tastes awful. Awful. Yes. That's yeah. the first thing I thought. 
Yeah. And number two is your stomach naturally is very acidic for an intentional reason to kill potential bacteria pathogens, right? To neutralize natural bacteria and everything that are in foods and enzymes in food. So when you add a very basic substance into a solution, because sodium bicarbonate is very basic, yeah. your stomach's going to have to probably release more acids to get that pH down to in the range of about one to four, because that's about the pH of food leaving your stomach is in the range of about one to four. So when you're eating very highly basic foods, one of the concerns, and I, this won't affect many people, it just affects some people, but I just want to bring attention to it, mm. is that your body may have to release, over-release more acids just to get that pH down. But fortunately, you've okay. got such a large volume of water that it shouldn't create any stomach ulcers or anything. But sometimes people get a little bit of that gastric reflux. So they get a little stomach duress. That's about the only known side effect. Um, the dumb way would be, I've you actually have heard of stories of people actually trying to infuse it directly into their blood. Don't Okay. ever do that you can kill yourself because if you over administer wow. there and you take your ph too high you are denaturing a lot of those sensitive proteins in your blood like red blood cells and white blood cells so that's just that's something that you absolutely never want to consider the solution okay. of drinking Good. is something you can do i just tell people flavor it because it tastes awful and you might get a little gi distress <clears throat> For a lot of people drinking a full liter is a lot of fluid in that you know that's sub, a lot yeah sub 45 minutes before you work out but it does work so okay it's a, the price you pay to be competitive, right? I Well, man, there's so many things that people are, are used to doing at this point. They might be supplementing that and they might have their creatine that they're mixing into their sodium bicarbonate. I don't know. Another one is uh, you've heard of beta alanine, right? Yeah. So that's another popular supplement because that actually helps produce a what we call a hydrogen scavenger called carnosine that's in your muscle cell. So you can actually buffer a little bit of hydrogen in the muscle cell itself. Okay. It's not, a, it's not as great as the blood, but it is a hydrogen scavenger. And so this carnosine that is a manufactured from beta alanine, which is a supplement, does help a little bit. It's probably not as effective as the other strategy of drinking that solution, but that is another option. So when you talk about multiple strategies, that might be two things to consider. And beta alanine seems to work. Okay. All right. So I have a, I have a question then because now we're understanding more how we increase somebody's speed. How do we increase somebody's strength? And we've got kind of these windows of work to rest ratio. Can we take that now and look at it practical application? And let's use American football as an example. Sure. I've got a corner who is going to run as fast as he can down the field to either block or to prepare to catch a ball. And that, that person then comes back and within 20 seconds, oh, yeah. they do it again. Um, there's a lineman, incredibly strong. There's another rhinoceros in front of them and they are pushing against each other for 10, 15 seconds. And then they take a 10 second break. And especially a lot of these offenses that are really fast these days. Now that, that turnaround's really quite yeah. small. So how do you then take this optimization of how fast in a single rep can you run or can you push and then combine that with the metabolic needs, the conditioning that needs to be done for your specific sport? And that could be boxers and UFC fighters and stuff like mm -hmm. that where they're yeah. doing five minutes straight. Sure. Good. Great question. So let's start with the, the uh, cornerback. Well, you know, safety wide receiver who you want to talk yeah. about. So again, I'm going to go back to my little tank here. So let's say the ball is snapped and let's say it's a five to seven second play. All right. So by the time the snap is taken, the cornerback is taking off and maybe it is a long bomb. And that total play might be as long as five to seven seconds. Usually it's a little shorter. So given that this person has been trained, hopefully well, his tank may be good for 10, maybe 11 seconds. All right. I'm just going to give him a benefit of the doubt. He's a super athlete, right? So he's not completely depleting it. So he will probably do what? Deplete most of it. And then he comes, he jogs back to the huddle. So a nice little active recovery, jogs back to the huddle. And he's got maybe by this time 25 seconds or 20 seconds left on the clock before he's got to go again. Right? So what did he get? He got a little bit filled. And he goes out for that next sprint. And again, maybe the quarterback calls the exact same play or, you know, whoever's calling the plays calls the exact same play. Yeah, listen, you're going to burn the field because I'm looking for that long bomb. Great. So he goes for another sprint, but he didn't start the second snap here. He started the second snap there. Okay. And he goes, boom, and now it's getting through there. And again, 
maybe the play came to him, maybe it didn't, whatever happens. He jogs back to the huddle and he's got that 20, 25 seconds. And you can see what's progressively happening here. Sure. So as a good, this is where there'd be good communication between the strength and conditioning coach and the play caller, call it the offensive coordinator, whoever it is, right? Where they realize if you want that best player to be able to perform on the field, you probably can't run a third or third exact play where you're asking him to, to sprint all out for five seconds because now what's going to happen, he doesn't have it in the tank and he's going to be slowing down his pace, which means his opposition, so if I'm talking about a wide receiver, that cornerback's going to cover him now, right? Or that safety is going to be able to cover him. Mm -hmm. So we have a problem. So now a smart coordinator, hopefully working in unison with a strength and conditioning coach, realizes that, hey, John can't do another one like this. So what we got to do is either change the play. So maybe what we need John to do is throw a block. All right. So what we're doing is giving him more recovery time, right? Okay. Or we play the ball to the other side of the field and we just have him do a little, you know, little decoy play and we just run to the other side of the field. The same thing with a running back. You can't give the running back the ball every time and say, you know, break through the line, break through the line. So a good coach recognizes that biologically an energy system can only do so much. It's inevitable. You can't defy biology. So either that player comes off the field and you put a sub on, which means you've got your second tier player on there, right? Mm -hmm. Or you just strategically called some realizing that he's might be good for one or two or three consecutive plays, but then we got to give a break. Right. And how yeah. you choose to run that Blake is one thing. Now the lineman's a whole different story because he's got to basically do what he doesn't get to sub on and off. He can, but generally they don't right? unless they've twisted an ankle or they went down. So that lineman's got to suck it up. But fortunately for the lineman is that his opponent is also getting tired. At the no. same <laughs> so, so if you were maybe, if you were actually look at their power production, I would be, this would be, I'm sure there's research on this, but Rick, I'd be interested to see. So here's the first snap. So we just had a change of position. They're on the field. And the first snap, you watch the power production of each of those two players, you know, the offensive and the defensive lineman. Mm -hmm. And let's say this is a string of plays where they're just marching down the field. And now we're at the sixth or seventh, you know, snap. And you watch their power. They might get to a point like two wrestlers who are just going to, like two boxes, they're just going to be leaning on each other, right? Right. Yeah. That's yeah. Very, and I mean, I'm, obviously, I'm exaggerating, but the reality is they probably haven't been given enough recovery, so they're not, you know, able to give that extra force. And this is where the difference between a well-conditioned athlete and a semi-conditioned athlete is going to make a difference. So going back to that first question you asked me earlier, what's the best way to train? So if I had those athletes as a strength and conditioning coach and I was able to do what? Start off training them physiologically in that 1 to 12, 1 to 20 ratio and then bringing it down as best I could because we all have a threshold to mimic the play clock, which could be a one to six, maybe a one to five, depending on, you know, if we're in college or it's a little bit more in, 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 in the, uh, you know, between the two college and the pro ranks. But then if I could get them the best way there, and I actually just work on intervals like that, I could be improving their recovery intervals, which okay. means on that eighth or ninth down, the athlete who's been better conditioned, conditioned more effectively might be able to do what? get a little jump start on his opponent. And that could be the difference of either blocking or making the gaps so the running back can get through there. So, but at some point the coaches have to recognize that we may need to do what, maybe just a quick dump over just to give these linemen a break because if they're sitting there pushing and shoving for five, six, seven <clears throat> seconds before the quarterback releases, they're going to be exhausted before they know. Right. Yeah. So this is, it, this applies to not only in the gym, but it applies to every sport we're playing. You know, I look at rugby, for example, in the game of soccer, and I remember having this conversation with the coach once and he was talking to me about conditioning and he just started coaching. And his idea was this soccer is a game of two 45 minute halves. That's 90 minutes. He thought it's an aerobic sport. So all his conditioning with athletes was running distance and had to come and tell him, now you're making a fundamental mistake. Look at how mm. the energy is expended in the game. 80% of the energy in a game of soccer and almost 85% in a game of rugby is spent anaerobically. Wow. Because at times where like a soccer player is standing around and he may theoretically stand for half the game, just stand observing the game on the other side of the field. But then he's got to work. And when he works, he's sprinting at everything he's got. He's chasing the ball. He's trying to get open. And that's where the calories are expended. So how he is actually expending his energy in a game is predominantly anaerobic. So the coach, you know, in a nice kind of way, I had to explain to him that you're creating aerobically conditioned athletes, but they're not going to be great in their game. You're going to be beaten to the ball. Why? Because your athletes are not learning how to do work recovery and they need to be trained that way. So in the off season, let's build that aerobic base. Let's build that aerobic efficiency. But then as we get towards the late preseason, we got to start 
it's the specificity of training, right? We got to start mimicking what the game, how the yeah. game is played. And so for those players, they got to do a lot of stop and starts. And that's basketball. It's baseball. I mean, think about it. It's almost every sport we play, ice hockey, rugby, they're all stop and start sports. And so build that aerobic base, but then really narrow in on really optimizing both those anaerobic energy systems by having different types of interval training, but train those energy pathways through stop and starts. Now, has research kind of shown also that there's a, there's an aerobic benefit to anaerobic training? So, yeah. So there's tons of research. Um, you're familiar with Tabata, right? Remember Tabata? Yes. Yeah. So in 1996, he did his research, right? Kind of ironic that Tabata training was only popularized in 2009. What happened for 15 yeah. years? Where was it hiding, <laughs> right? But what Tabata did is he had, so just to give you a quick uh, synopsis of, of the actual study, um, he took half the candidates, there were 14 subjects, he took half of them, and he created this crazy protocol, that 2010 protocol that's been popularized with Tabata. And the idea was he wanted them to do eight intervals. So 30 second interval, 20 on, 10 off. And in fact, if they could do a ninth interval, the next subsequent workout, he actually increased the intensity of work because he realized that was the capacity of the anaerobic system. So he didn't want him to go over four minutes of work. Right. Mm -hmm. so anytime you could sustain, like do a ninth interval, he said, ah, I got to take the work up so you can only barely finish the eighth one. So wow. really, and he had them train four times a week. So they did 16 minutes of work. Right. The control group did five 60 minute steady state workouts. They did 300 minutes of work. Right. So you would one doing interval training and one doing mm -hmm. traditional aerobic training. And then after it was a short study, they did it for six weeks. Right. Okay. What they did is they reassessed the anaerobic capacity and the VO2 max. And both groups showed comparable VO2 max scores. They showed about a 6% increase in their VO2 max scores. Interesting. Both forms of training. Because what happens, the way to explain this is people say, because the mindset used to be years ago, these systems are mutually exclusive and they're not. They yeah. are very, you know, I mean, inclusive. And the idea is that the way I explain it to my students is that when you put that much stress on the anaerobic systems, the body is looking for a way to try and alleviate that stress. And it says, if I can improve my aerobic efficiency, then I don't have to overwhelm or overtax my anaerobic systems. So by trying to improve my aerobic systems, I'm actually taking the stress off my anaerobic systems, which means I can do a little bit more work before I have to start relying on the anaerobic systems. So we do see that adaptation. And Tabata did see, he saw both groups showed a comparable improvement in their aerobic capacity, VO2 max scores. Now, anaerobically, the experimental group was blew the other group out of water. But to answer your question, yes, if you do interval type training, you will see some improvements in your VO2 max. Is it the best way to do it again? This is the whole point. A good way right. and the best way. It's probably not the best way to improve it. The best way would actually become a better athlete would be to, you know, it's much like you you know, you, you train for strength and then you train for power. You don't train them simultaneously, right? I would train in the off season to build your aerobic efficiency. We call it moving your VT1, your ventilatory threshold one. And then I'd start later on transitioning to doing some more training around your anaerobic thresholds, your VT2, to get that up. So at the end of the day, I've got you both aerobically efficient and anaerobically tolerant or, or capable. That would be my best way, but it's not trained simultaneously. In okay. a maintenance phase during the season, I can do that. But to build them, I want to build them somewhat in ex in, in exclusive um, kind of time blocks. And we and we don't see that flip the other way around. Then, so you don't see people training their aerobic system and getting anaerobic benefit from it. I suppose um, it depends. You've heard of in marathon running, they talk about your tempo runs. Yes, tempo runs. So tempo runs are where you're doing steady state training, but you're running right underneath your anaerobic threshold. And that does seems to be able to push it a little bit. So to answer your question, um, you will still, depending on how you're doing aerobic training, if you're just doing moderate continuous intensity training, you're not going to see much of an improvement. Mm -hmm. But if you're pushing your tempos closer towards that anaerobic threshold, you can definitely see improvements in your anaerobic threshold or your, your um, what's called your VT2. Okay. Have you noticed one thing? I haven't said the word lactate threshold. You have not. And I was thinking it when you were talking about and the you know why? runs. Why? You know why? Because it's a confusing topic. Because in science, what science is called anaerobic uh, lactate threshold is not what practitioners call lactate threshold. So you and I as oh. practitioners would call a lactate threshold, mark that lactate threshold as that highest sustainable intensity that we can endure. 
So for example, if I'm running a marathon, people say, I want to run right underneath my, my lactate threshold. In fact, your lactate mm -hmm. threshold happened a long time ago. Lactate threshold by definition is when we see a first noticeable increase in the amount of lactate in your blood, generally increasing two mil above two millimoles. Oh. And that happens at about a five, five and a half to seven out of 10 intensity. So that word lactate threshold in science does not mean what practitioners have used. So a lot of times we get confused. Like if I'm talking to ah. a client, they might be thinking it's that anaerobic threshold. But if I'm talking to a scientist, I'm giving them a whole different thing. So because of its confusion, we've kind of strayed away from it. So now we use the words, sometimes we use the word aerobic threshold or VT1, ventilatory threshold one. And we use the word anaerobic threshold or VT2 just to kind of differentiate the two because it does, otherwise I got asked the question, hang on a second, define to me what you mean by lactate threshold. Okay, now that I know what you're talking about, now I know what I'm working with because it is, there is a little, it got lost in translation some point along the road, along the way. Interesting, okay. No, I did not know that. And I, I equated it the same thing as an anaerobic threshold. Most people do, but yeah. it's, okay. it's not, yeah. All right, gosh, I really love when I have you on here, Fabio. I get to learn so much from you. Uh, question about dietary intake in preparation for this type of uh, of training. So we've got um, we, we we've got people who are going to go through these aerobic type trainings and these anaerobic trainings. What type of dietary stuff should they have pre and post, depending on what they're doing? Sure. Uh, first of all, hydration is probably going to be the most important thing to think about because okay. it's much like if your car is driving on soft tires, you don't get, get great gas mileage, right? So hydrated cell, remember all these pathways, these me metabolic pathways we're talking about are happening inside the cell. So hydration mm -hmm. before, aggressive hydration during, all right, are definitely um, probably the number one priority in my opinion. The fueling okay. comes second. I mean, assuming you're eating balanced food, you're not starving yourself. Um, our CNC, you know, our Certified Nutritional Coach uh, credential, I think that's a great course to go through because there is a section devoted to pre-peri, which is during and post-exercise strategies. But I'll give you kind of a quick overview. So if you're going to do anaerobic type training, all right, remember, the only macronutrient that feeds into the anaerobic pathways is glucose, right? Feeds into the, the glycolysis. So the way I look at it is <laughs> during exercise, well, actually, I got to take a step back to explain things. Of course. When most of us talk about how glucose is taken up into the muscle cell, we think of insulin, right? Insulin is an anabolic mm -hmm. hormone. It's not just taking glucose into the cell to be used as a fuel. Insulin likes to create storage forms of fuel. So it likes to build glycogen. It likes to build fatty, acid, uh, fatty acids and build triglycerides. It likes to promote muscle protein synthesis. Those are all good things, but they're not what we need during exercise. If you think about exercise, exercise is a catabolic event. We're breaking down stored energy. So what we don't want during exercise is the presence of insulin. If you think about it, insulin is an anabolic hormone. Exercise is a catabolic event. So we naturally suppress our production of insulin during exercise because we don't want it around. So the question is then how do I get glucose into the muscle cell? It's real easy. There's two ways that glucose can move into a cell. So for example, at rest in your liver, organs like your liver and your muscles, for example, we use this insulin-mediated insulin pathway where we have insulin bind to a receptor that opens up a channel and glucose moves through, amino acids move through. That's a very simple process. But then how do I get glucose into a red blood cell? How do I get glucose into other organs? Well, we have a second pathway that's called non-insulin-mediated glucose uptake, which means we can actually get glucose into the cell in the absence of insulin. And that's what muscles end up doing during exercise. When we shut off the production of insulin and you're trying to get glucose into your muscle cells during a workout, think of the person taking like the little gel packets while they're doing a marathon training. Yeah. How are they still getting glucose into the muscle cells if there's no insulin? Because the body shifts under muscle contraction, we can actually move receptors to the outer wall and that allows glucose to be able to move in without the presence of insulin. So the first thing we've got to think about for an endurance type athlete <laughs> and the anaerobic athlete is they need a fuel and their fuel is glucose. Now, for the anaerobic athlete, I'm not worried about any of this because if you are eating some carbohydrates, right, the amount of carbohydrates you have in your muscle cells are probably good for 90 minutes to 120 minutes of work in the average okay. adult. If you're a trained adult, it could even be more. So most of us aren't doing 90 to 120 minutes of anaerobic work in a gym. 
So the likelihood of you depleting your muscle glycogen. Of, of anaerobic or aerobic? I'm doing anaerobic first. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the likelihood of you depleting your glycogen tank in an anaerobic workout is very, very rare. They've even done studies showing that 60 to 90 minutes of anaerobic work is only depleting your glycogen stores by about 40%. Why? Because lactate, remember, lactate is not a waste product. Lactate is a fuel. So we take lactate and we can use it in the muscle cell. So we can take it to a different muscle fiber within the same muscle cell. We can even use it within that muscle fiber, or we can put it into the blood, get it to the liver, reconvert it back to glucose, and send it right back to the muscle cell. So lactate is not a waste product. It's a viable fuel for the body. And so one of the things that we just have to appreciate, as long as you're getting carbs on a consistent basis and you haven't been fasting too long, right? Your anaerobic workout is probably not going to be compromised. Hydration might be the only thing that compromises you, right? So I always take a pre-game snack or a pre-training snack is not a bad idea just to top off your reserves, right? Yeah. So if you haven't eaten generally, you know, if you haven't eaten, say, four or five hours, like you had lunch at 12 and you're going to work out at five, a little light snack with just some carbs. It doesn't have to be heavy. You know, maybe 20 to 25 grams of carbs could be actually just fine in that, 30 minutes before you work out. And the nice thing about anaerobic work is we don't have to worry about insulin because it's mostly anaerobic work, right? So we're not worried about you insulin interfering with things because the anaerobic systems are not affected by insulin to the same degree as the aerobic pathways. So prior to exercise, I would definitely say, make sure that you have, you're eating some carbohydrates somewhat consistently. If you haven't eaten in several hours, take a light carb snack before you go into your workout. During the workout, there's probably no need for anything. And then post-workout, yeah, your glycogen resynthesis pathways are most active in the first hour. So if you did a pretty exhaustive workout, it probably would make sense to take in some glucose or carbohydrates right after your workout as soon as you can, whether it's liquid form, solid form. And there are guidelines in the CNC that talks about how many grams of, of, of carbohydrates per kilogram of body weight, right? You can kind of follow that protocol right there. Now, the aerobic athletes are a little different because one of the concerns I have is, and this is sometimes called the kiss of death for endurance athletes. Once we start okay. exercising, you suppress insulin, right? Activation of the sympathetic nervous system helps suppress the production of insulin. But if insulin is already in circulation, when you go into your aerobic workout, you might be screwed. Let me explain that. Remember, insulin is an anabolic okay. hormone, right? So it's trying to prevent you from breaking down stored fuels. Now, when you eat foods postprandial, say in that 40 to 60 minute window following your eating, food is starting to enter the blood and you're gonna see an elevation of insulin levels. So glucose will pass through the pancreas, trigger the pancreas, the beta cells to make insulin, insulin goes into circulation. And we all know what insulin's job is, right? It's to normalize blood sugar, get amino acids out of the blood, things of that nature. Once that job is done, we can't keep insulin in circulation. We have to remove that insulin. Otherwise, it's going to do what? Keep lowering our blood sugar. Right. Yeah. So we have the liver that is tasked primarily, the kidneys do it too, of reabsorbing that insulin out of circulation and breaking it down. It's just made from amino acids, right? So that's yeah. the normal function. Now, here's the catch. Let's say you ate a big meal. So, Rick, you're going to go do a marathon training. You're going to go run, say, you know, you're preparing for a marathon. You're going to go do, like, today's your long, slow distance. You're going to go run for, say, 15 miles today. You want to go do a long mile, right? So, it's going to take you several hours, right? And you decide, I've got to eat a big meal. So, let's say you eat a big carb meal 60 minutes before your workout. Okay. Probably not the smartest idea for several reasons. Number one, it's gonna, a lot of it will still be sitting in your stomach. But you're going to go into that run with insulin in circulation, and that insulin doesn't just go away. And remember, what's even worse is during exercise, we shut down blood circulation to the liver and the kidneys because where are we sending it to? The muscles, right? And so what's going to happen is you're going into that workout with insulin circulation and you're trying to do what? In an aerobic ex ex workout, you're trying to mobilize fat stores. But insulin is inhibiting that because insulin inhibits the enzyme that starts the process of breaking down stored fats. So what ends up happening is that you actually have to start breaking, working through your glycogen stores at more rapid pace. That's why it's called the kiss of death, because you will bonk or hit exhaustion faster than someone who went into the workout without insulin circulation. Does that make sense? Interesting. Yes, it does. So generally, we have this idea that if you're going to eat a big meal before your aerobic workout, we have it's called the rule of four. And we generally say one hour before your workout, it should be low glycemic loads of carbohydrates 
because we don't want much of an insulin level and we have one gram per kilogram of body weight. If you're gonna go out and eat a big meal three hours before, because it's gonna be longer training, that three hours is gonna allow you time to normalize your insulin level. So we say you can have more freedom of choosing the carbohydrates you want, but we're also gonna give you a bigger dose, generally three grams per kilogram. So it's kind of like one hour, two hour, three hour, four hours. It's one gram per kilogram of body weight, two grams per kilogram of body weight. So based on how big your training is gonna be, we work backwards to get you a bigger meal, but we also work backwards to make sure insulin is normalized before you go into your workouts. So the kiss of death is to make sure that for an endurance athlete, you don't go into training with insulin circulation. And so the more carbs you're gonna take, the further we need to back it away from your workout to make sure insulin is normalized before you start your training session. Because the last thing you wanna do is to impair the body's ability to mobilize fats. And that's what insulin does. And so that's, that's so interesting. That's a critical thing for an endurance athlete. So it becomes a little bit more strategic for an endurance athlete than it does for the anaerobic athlete for the carbs pre-exercise. Wow, my head's spinning right now. Of course, you know, I'm a, a type two diabetic. So when I hear things like this, my mind immediately goes to, all right, well, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for 34 million other Americans that are type two yeah. diabetic? Um, and a lot of it, I think, is the value that goes along with the non-insulin dependent movement of glucose into this. So yes. can I ask a question then? Yeah. I, and then I don't want to stay on it and we'll open it up for other people that have questions to ask, but should anybody that's dosing with insulin, even if they are type two, um, I, I assume I consult their position, but from a, a theoretical position, would they not necessarily have as much insulin or depending on their dose before exercise, just so they can, they can shuttle that without the insulin? Yeah, so the, we're, we've entered a time and age where insulin is dispensed in many different ways. We have yeah. people doing shots, and then there's obviously dosing from insulin pumps. Um, obviously, the, the science has advanced. The dosing allows us to regulate. The body's constantly sampling and regulating the, the mm -hmm. release of insulin. You're absolutely right. During exercise, um, we don't want insulin because you you've naturally are, are triggering that second pathway, that non-insulin-mediated pathway. Yeah. And you would exacerbate that if you had insulin on top of that, right? Yeah. Because now you'd just be, your poor liver would be trying to fight the fact that all this glucose has been taken up to the muscle cells and, and the liver is tasked with preserving blood sugar, right? And so, yeah, you definitely want to, number one, talk to your doctor. That's the most important thing. And your doctor, right. based on the type of insulin that you might be taking, your doctor would have recommendations as to, you know, for people that are on a, on a time dosing, like an insulin pump, the doctor mm -hmm. may be able to make some adjustments or the doctor may have recommendations as to when would be a good time to exercise when not based on when the insulin is being released to your body. So timing around your meals and everything, that would be more medical guidelines that you should follow. Obviously for the person who's taking the injections, it's always been the concern that you don't want to inject directly into like, you know, for example, into your leg, if you're going to go running, right? Because that could have a yeah. hypoglycemic effect. So I think anyone who's got a pathology should be consulting with a physician and maybe even a dietitian, but physician primarily. Mm -hmm. as to what can I and cannot do. But we do know this. You, for example, probably manage your diabetes pretty well because you're a very active person, right? So outside of exercise, you know, we need insulin to be able to mediate glucose uptake. And obviously, as you know, for type 2 diabetics, that percentage of the population that we talk about that are pre-diabetics or type 2 diabetics, right, which is a huge number in our country right now, you know, we've got we've got this idea that, the insulin is present, it's just insulin resistance. The receptors have downregulated themselves. Well, we've all known that one way to help upregulate the, the, the receptors over time is being active. Movement. Exercise is great, but even movement has been shown. So that it's getting out of your chair and walking is a good start for a lot of people, for your clients, to be able to start seeing improvements in that insulin sensitivity so that now they can manage their diabetes very well. But to your point, yeah, you definitely would have to consider as someone who's taking an exogenous sort of insulin, you definitely have to factor in your dosing, your type of insulin with the timing of your training and the timing of your diets. And that's where your doctor has to come in. Gotcha. I would never right. say, trainers should never take that responsibility into their hands because we're just not skilled. not. We're just not skilled enough to know that. Yeah. 
Uh, thank you. Okay, that's amazing. But let's get over to Greg, our producer, and see if we have any questions that have come up for you within our thread there. Yeah, we actually had Cheryl in the chat wanting to know right. what is the what is the ratio of bicarbonate soda to water that uh, that is recommended? 0.3 grams per kilogram of body weight. So I'll do the calculation. If you're not, I always joke to my students, I'm like, Americans are metrically impaired. So let me <laughs> That is for sure. <laughs> so that'd be a dosing of about 0.14 grams per pound of body weight. So if you were just using pounds, so what you do is you take up to a liter of water. You don't have to drink a liter of water, but I'll just tell you, you want to dilute that sodium bicarbonate because it is pretty nasty, right? So the dosing would be 0.3 grams per kilogram or 0.1, I'm rounding it off, 0.14 grams per pound. So whatever your body weight is, multiply it by that constant, and that gives you the total of how much baking soda you should take. Throw that into your solution of water, uh, flavor it if you need to, and then drink it within the, let's just call it an hour before you work out. All right, the closer you can get it to your workout, the more effective it'll be, but also have to appreciate you don't want to go into a workout with a full bladder and you know all that water in your stomach. But that hopefully answers your question. Also, let me just convert liters. Uh, it's oh, 4.2 yeah. cups, just so you know. Yeah, 33.8 okay. <laughs> ounces, yeah, so there you go. I know, all this right. whole metric system is, welcome to the world of science, right? I know why I do the conversion in in society should take place, but it's just too difficult to turn the Queen Mary around. So uh, <laughs> maybe one day, maybe one day. All right, Greg, uh, do we have anybody else asking questions here? Yeah, Steve wants to know why is chocolate milk a good post-workout recovery mm. drink? I personally think it's a great drink anytime. It always tastes good. All right. So I'm going to explain to you that it is and it isn't. Um, it is because they did a study several years ago. The National Dairy Board funded the study. And they actually compared um, chocolate milk against like a Gatorade type product. It wasn't Gatorade. It was a, a glucose electrolyte solution. And they were looking at muscle recovery and muscle soreness. Well, unfortunately, it wasn't a fair comparison because we know that when people supplement with BCAAs, all right, and that's what milk has, a lot of great source of BCAAs, you can actually help expedite recovery and reduce muscle soreness. So you're comparing one that had amino acids in it versus one that didn't. So it was an unfair comparison. But I will tell you this, it is still effective because if you think about it, post-exercise, the things that you really want is you want some carbs, all right, to help, um, you know, replenish some glycogen, but carbs can also help the expedition of amino acids into the cell and vice versa. Amino acids can help with the expedition of carbs into the muscle cell. And milk gives you a good ratio. Chocolate milk gives you a good ratio of protein to carbs. So regular milk is about 12 grams of carbs to about eight grams of protein. So that's a like a three to two ratio, but chocolate milk is more in that three to one, four to one ratio of carbs to protein. And that's what they typically find in studies. They talk about how good recovery ratios are in that two to one to four to one ratio of carbs to protein. So you can definitely do that. But for some people, they say, well, that's too much carbs. Well, the, actually, I will tell you now, there's a new type of chocolate milk on the market. I don't know if you've heard of it. So again, no product endorsement here. I have no full disclosure. I have no affiliation with them. But if you've ever gone and looked at this new product called Fairlife, Fairlife Milk, they have what's called an ultra filtration method. And what they do is they actually pull more sugar out of the milk. And as a result, you get more protein. So look at a cup of milk, for example. A cup of milk generally has about uh -huh. eight grams of protein, eight to nine grams, and about 12 grams of sugar. This ultra light has about 13 grams of protein and only five grams of sugar. So they also make a chocolate milk version now too. And the chocolate milk version actually has more protein and slightly less carbs. So for someone who, great to go back to your point, chocolate milk is has a good ratio of carbs to protein. But if you're concerned about too much carbs, there's too much sugar, then use the, like buy these new types of chocolate milk that are coming out where they've got less sugar because they've actually pulled some of the sugar out of it. It won't be as sweet, but it will definitely have a higher ratio of proteins in comparison to your, your carbs. But there is one consideration that you're missing. Probably the most important strategy you need to think about post-exercise is not your carbs, not your amino acids, but your fluid. You've got to get that fluid in to rehydrate the cells. And the problem is, if you're talking about how much fluid you might need, you might need several pints of fluid. 
And to do that through chocolate milk is going to be very uncomfortable because there's a lot of chocolate oh, milk. Right? Yeah. So I would say to you as a post-exercise recovery, first figure out how much fluid you need and get most of that fluid through a traditional non-caloric beverage, just like an electrolyte solution or just water even. And then you can have your chocolate milk to give you the protein and the carbs that you might need. But that's where chocolate milk is going to fall short. It's not going to give you enough fluid. So you need to balance that chocolate milk with some fluid intake to get yourself into this opportunity to optimally re recover your body. Interesting. All right. I like it. Greg, what else you got? Yeah, Joanna wants to know, is it best to do aerobic exercise first, then anaerobic uh, during one session or split them up? You will, no one will give you an, a consensual agreement on this one. It's much like the same question. What's better? Should I do my weight training before my cardio or my cardio before weight training? That's right. Um, I look at it from a standpoint, kind of like in weight training, where if I'm going to do today some Olympic lifts and then I'm going to do some, let's say, some traditional strength base, like a leg press, the Olympic lifts require more concentration. They require more technique. They also have a high risk of injury. So I'm going to probably do those ones first just from the standpoint of safety and maybe effectiveness of my workout. Because if I'm fatigued and then go into my Olympic lifts, if I'm fatigued, my, my Olympic lifts might be less than optimal and I might hurt myself. So much like you're talking about, if I'm going to do anaerobic work, or I'm going to do some sprints, let's say on a treadmill, and then I want to do aerobic work, I'm more likely to probably risk an injury on the sprints on the treadmill. Because if I'm really tired and I can't keep up with the treadmill, you could become a nice YouTube video. Right. Yep. <laughs> I would suggest from a standpoint of just safety, um, you know, you could, I would say, do the anaerobic work first because that's more performance driven and you're going to get better performances out of there, which means you'll probably get better overload and better adaptation. Now, there's going to be arguments made, you know, the, the aerobic system is going to properly warm up the body. We can make all those arguments. I would just say from the standpoint of things. I would lean more towards how well you can perform and I would do the more demanding, more skill demanding and more energy demanding uh, workout first and do the cardio last. That would just be my, uh, my personal opinion. I may be wrong. No, I think that's a good idea. And uh, that's certainly going to be um, implementing those workouts after an appropriate warm up to also make sure that you're good enough yeah, to go yeah. into doing those Olympic lifts yes. or sprints. Yeah. Uh, Greg, what else you got, sir? Usually I don't come on camera, but I thought I'd do that for this. Uh, if, if you guys, uh, if you guys listening or watching have enjoyed the conversation with these two gentlemen, uh, I highly recommend you join us for ASM. Uh, well, you know, I got to be nice. To you guys. I'm wow. on camera. So these gentlemen here, uh, I highly recommend you join us for NASM Optima coming up October 13th through the 16th. They both will be doing sessions and, uh, you're not going to get better than these two guys. So if you want to click the link in the description here or head to nasmoptima.com, you can take advantage of our early bird uh, or our doorbuster, I think we're calling it, sale. You can get uh, all four days of the of the conference, all virtual, for $159, and you can hear from both Rick and Fabio. So I uh, wanted to encourage everybody to do that, and thank you, gentlemen. I always enjoy Getting to be a fly on the wall and, and listening to your conversations as well. I'm still Thank shocked. You, Craig. Call me a gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I have to be nice to the guests. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> That's true. You would have never said that about me if you weren't yeah. here. So. <laughs> or me in person by myself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I do have one more quick question, yeah. just a quick answer, because somebody asked me this question. Um, eating before bedtime was the question. I want to know about eating before bedtime. Uh, I think that there are layers to this, but I want to have you start to, to just a, a quick shot with it. You know, it's been interesting because we've seen some research coming out talking about taking a slow, a slow protein before you go to bed. Yeah. And the reason being is because we all know in the morning we wake up, our liver glycogen tank is somewhat diminished and our cortisol levels are elevated. And that's the whole premise around fasted cardio. But cortisol is catabolic in nature. It can actually theoretically can attack some muscle protein, right? So there's always the potential. So this idea of taking a slow protein before you go to bed can help minimize that catabolic effects in the wee hours of the morning. Now, I'm, I'm a big supporter of that. So I, I tend to try and do that myself. But 
the dosages that are being recommended right now are significantly large. You know, we used to recommend a sub 15 gram dosages. Now we're seeing recommendations of dosages that are going into the range of 40 grams and upwards. All right. Before uh, we go protein. Yeah. Like a, like a slow protein. And oh, so my. that's a lot. Now here's my concern with that. Think about your sleep cycle. When you go to sleep, stage two, so when you first start falling asleep, you go from stage one into stage two. Stage two is characterized by a gradual uh, reduction in your core temperature. And the reason being is because your core temperature needs to drop so that you can transition into deep sleep, which is sleep three and sleep uh, stage three and four, which is your deep restful sleep. But if you've got digestion and absorption going on, it could kind of keep your, that generates heat. It's called the thermic effect of food. It could generate a little bit of heat that actually might delay that ability mm. of your temperature to go down. So there is the potential. I would love to see a study on this where, mm. you know, we looked at that large amount of protein. Now that we're recommending more protein, would that have an effect on your heat that your body's generating from digestion and absorption that might compromise your ability to go into deep sleep? So I always, and also I don't think many people, I mean, remember your stomach empty, is about five ounces. Distended is about 20 to 27 ounces. So if you're taking in 40 grams of protein, that's quite a lot. Like I look at four, a four, ounce, four ounce container of cottage cheese, right? That's a slow protein. That has about nine grams of protein. So if I had to take five of those, that would get me 45 grams of protein, but that's 20 ounces of cottage cheese. First of all, I have no intention of drink, of eating cottage cheese. And number two, that might distend my stomach that I might feel uncomfortable lying down because as I lie down, that stomach puts pressure on my diaphragm and it may even compromise my breathing. So I'm a little concerned about that. So they, obviously they're talking about just kind of like a, a concentrated form in like a liquid, but- Like a casing powder? Yeah, in like a small amount of volume because I would be concerned about large volumes and also the thermic effect of food as you're trying to go to sleep. So I'm an okay. advocate of, I've always been an advocate of like a sub, like 15 grams, you know, 10 to 15 grams. has always been something I've recommended. But I got to tell you, there's research out there talking about, you know, they're recommending like um, International Society Supports Nutrition. Their position statement talks about these large dosages. And wow. that's, to me, it's a large dose. I would say, try it. And see if it works for you. And if you are finding it's compromising your sleep, then maybe back out a little bit. But that's okay. what we're really talking about. So, you know, the need for carbs overnight, no, it's really a protein need. But that quantity now is becoming a little concerning because I'm worried about the quality of sleep and that discomfort that you might get from a distended stomach. So okay. But the, the potential for 12, 15, uh, 15 grams, that might be the, the glass of milk before bed though, right? Like that's... Uh, because that's a, is it right that the casein and the whey are slower release proteins? Casein is a slow re release because uh, it's an insoluble protein. Whey is a very rapid protein. Like a whey powder on an empty stomach is in your blood within about 15 okay. to 20 minutes. Okay. It's the casein that's slow because it's insoluble. It forms uh, these parts. The so it needs to be a slow protein. That's the whole point is a slow protein that will have a very timed release so that in the wee hours mm -hmm. of the morning, when your cortisol is looking to become catabolic, it's going to attack food amino acids rather than muscle amino acids. That's an easy way. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. All right. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time again. I look forward to having you back and hopefully have you back one more time before the year, the year ends. And uh, it's 2020. And I got to be honest, I cannot wait for it to end. <laughs> I think everyone is thinking the same way. Let's just put this one behind us and look to the next year. But anyhow, always an honor, always a privilege to be able to talk to you. Greg, thank you for everything there. Thanks for inviting me. I'm honored and I'd love to be back on again. Oh, Fabio, please let them know. Uh, best way to get in touch with you or follow you if you do social, uh, reach out if there's a means for them to do so then. Yeah, NASM, you can find me through NASM. So I've got my my first name, period, last name at nasm.org. Uh, and then, I, you know, I'm not I'm not a huge social media person because I got too many f killed in the fire, but I do, do, I post stuff occasionally on Facebook. So you can always find me on Facebook too. Okay. I'm not Excellent. an Instagram type of guy. I, I just, I, I need someone to do that for me. I just don't have the time. I'm, can I get somebody else to get me like <laughs> bouncing my pecs? <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Fabio Camano, for being on. Thank you for listening. We went a little bit over, but it was so worth it listening to Fabio talk. And uh, we do hope to see you at Optima. My name is Rick Ritchie. Uh, you can see me at dr.richie, uh, Rick Ritchie, R-I-C-H-E-Y, uh, on Instagram or rick.richie at nasm.org. This has been the NASM CPT Podcast.
Thank you.